1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. I just spoke with Louise Young about her new book, Beyond the Metropolis, Second Cities and Modern Life in Interwar Japan. This was published in 2013 by the University of California Press. This is a book that speaks very broadly to a wide range of readers and thinkers, regardless of whether you work on Japan, whether you work on modernity, or whether you think about yourself as a historian or a reader who works on or reads about cities or urban life. The story takes the shape of a deep account and a a juxtaposed account, a hybrid account, of the importance of then the processes and production of provincial cities in the interwar period in Japan. What it does is tries to move us away collectively from a picture of modernity and urban life globally, but particularly in Japan, that focuses on and takes for granted the centrality of Tokyo as the representative case of the city, of urban life, and of, you know, the center of the story. And what it does is open up a really wonderfully fascinating, rich account of. With simultaneously local differences, but also interesting convergences in the emergence and production of lived experiences of spaces of and temporalities of city life in the early to mid 20th century. It's a fascinating story, and it was really, really a pleasure to talk with Louise about it because she's really, really thoughtful, both in our conversation and also in the scope of the book, about the ways that the sources of the historian, the archive, the craft of history really shaped not just her own research process, but also the way the narrative of the book itself plays out and and leads us through the story. It's a really wonderful book. I learned a ton from it. I think it's very widely... In dialogue with a lot of different kinds of historiography and I hope you enjoy both the book and the conversation. We're here today to talk with Louise Young about her brand new book Beyond the Metropolis, Second Cities and Modern Life in Interwar Japan. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies and thank you so much for being with me today, Louise.
0: Thank you. This is a great opportunity and it's a really terrific idea.
1: Well, thank you so much. Well, it's a really terrific book, so it's um, it's going to be a pleasure. I know it was a pleasure to read the book, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about it. So could you start us off a little, as is traditional for our channel, by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field that this book is situated in? How did you become a scholar of the field of modern Japanese history?
0: Well... Let's see. I was uh I, I was an undergraduate here at the University of Wisconsin. I actually grew up in Madison. I'm a native of Wisconsin. And when I was an undergraduate, uh we had we were really lucky to have two wonderful scholars here, uh one in political science, Susan Farr, and one in Japanese history, John Dower. And it was really through their their courses that I just took as a matter of you know, filling requirements that I became really interested in, in Japan. And then when I graduated with a political science degree, didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was able to go over to Japan and teach English for a couple of years. And that kind of cemented my, my interest in Japan, really. And then at that point, I decided to go to graduate school.
1: Great. Now, the book itself that we're talking about today isn't your first book. This comes as a a major point in a long research trajectory and a long research career that you've had. So can you talk a little bit about how you came to this particular project? How does this result from the larger trajectory of your work?
0: Well, my first book that grew out of my dissertation work was uh, dealing with Japanese imperialism and looking at Japanese imperialism in Manchuria, uh, Northeast China, and the ways in which the kind of process of of empire building was reshaping uh, uh, the metropole and, and, and domestic society. And when I was doing that research, one of the areas that I was looking at is... You know why Japanese, why people went over to Manchuria. There was this huge boom in, in emigration, and uh, almost a million people went over there in the 1930s. And many of them went to live in in cities. And so I started looking at Manchurian cities, and there was this huge boom in in urban growth during that period. And also, as part of the the kind of um, the emigration, there was a, a just enormous buzz about urbanism about uh urban planning about the the kind of creation of um of cities and it was a, it was associated with a kind of utopianism of those of those cities a um and a um the ways that the cities were figured as as these lands of opportunity and so it just got me thinking about about cities and why it was that how it was that these cities off in the japanese empire could could be represented as as something so modern so uh, in some cases utopian some so full of opportunity and, and possibility so that was that sort of got me interested in the link between urban and and modern um, and then as i was trying to think about well you know where would i'd like to spend um the next sort of decade of my my thought and my work life and my research i realized that well, all of my research had been carried out in Tokyo. Even when I was was doing a research project that was dealing with Manchuria or China, you know, a lot of the archives that I looked at were based in Tokyo. And so I was sort of struck by that irony and uh, also that I wanted to get out of the, get out of Tokyo. So I came up with this research project really as a way of, of, allowing me to go out and and explore archives and the the world outside of Tokyo.
1: That's great. And that really infuses um the, the book with so much Character, and th- it's, I, there's a ton that I want to ask you about sources later on, so I'm, I'm thrilled that this actually is something that spurred the genesis of the project in the first place. So, the book for listeners who haven't had a chance yet to read it is set in Japan during the interwar period. So, for non specialists, that's 1918 to 1937. You describe early in the book how this period saw a rapid urbanization. And during this rapid urbanization in the post-war period, the Japanese begin to talk about modernity and the urban experience as part of the same conversation. It was also the period in which, as you put it, the material and ideological structures of the city, the city as a place, as a concept, as an object, really took their modern shape. So modernity usually takes the shape of, or it usually takes the shape of a tale in previous work and in other work by historians as a tale of two revolutions. And you set these out at the beginning of the book. One of these revolutions is the political, social, cultural, and economic set of transformations that accompany the rise of the nation state. And the other is the emergence of an industrial capitalism. Now, this sort of moves us into the place where this book in particular situates itself in relation to this larger literature. A second phase in the Industrial Revolution, as you very helpfully put this early in the book, emerges as provincial development, specifically provincial development, becomes one of capitalism's new frontiers. And this is particularly the case in Japan. So that's where we are in the case, in the framework of situating this within a larger set of stories about modernity and um, the link between modernity and urbanism and we'll revisit this over the course of the conversation I'm sure okay so this gets to my first real question for you The most historians of Japan as, as you mentioned or in, in the book and as you just kind of talked about in the case of your own Genesis as a scholar have told the story that I just described by focusing on Tokyo what beyond the metropolis does really significantly is shifting our focus beyond Tokyo to the world of the provision city. So can you talk about your decision to focus this way and to focus on, in particular, the four cities that make up the basis of the case studies in the book? And these are the cities of Sapporo, Kanazawa, Okayama, and Niigata.
0: Right. Well, that's the um, the, the issue of, of what, what, what sort of Drove my decision to go get outside of, of Tokyo and to select these particular cities. In a way, I would love to be able to say, well, I, I carefully researched and I picked them for a, a very elaborate set of reasons, but it, honestly, I sort of picked these places out of a hat as places that I wanted to go. And, <laughs> and I kind of constructed afterwards a set of, a set of rationales for why they worked for me. Um, and initially it, it was, I had a list of 10 cities that I wanted to go to. And I, and I, when I was fishing around for what would be good cities, good sort of case study cities to look at, I, I, You know, at first I thought, well, should I have another one of the larger cities in the Kansai, like Nagoya or or Kyoto or or Kobe, some place like that? Um, Do I want to have a really small city? Do I want to have a combination of this kind of city and that kind of city? I was going to try to come up with cities that were some represented, some regional type. and. You know, I, I struggled with that for a while and I couldn't really come up with some sense of this this problem of representation that one of these regional cities stands in for a larger sort of subset of cities. Um, so I sort of just pushed that aside and and decided to go with this random selection of these of these initially 10 cities. And then out of that larger group of 10. I whittled it down to four just because they were the first four that I went to. And then after I'd been to four, I I, I realized, you know, this is um, I can't really handle more than four. Four cases is enough, really. Uh, now, what afterwards, at, you know, when I came to the end of drafting the project and and started trying to think about, again, revisit this problem of, of representation, I what I realized was that. There's you can't represent a city can't stand in for something bigger. I mean, in fact, one of the points that I try to make here is that there's no every city is sui generis. Tokyo, Tokyo is not an example of a, of a world city. It's it's really just an example of itself. Um, and that that goes for these other cities that I deal with, too. That, you know, you could say that I've, two of my cities are on the. 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 Uh, the the inland sea. Um, excuse me. The um the coast facing China, Niigata and Kanazawa. So they're they're both on the sort of um, Japan's so called back coast, but they're actually really different from each other. Um, two of the cities, Kanazawa and Okayama, are both formal castle towns, former castle towns, and so one might expect that that would give rise to certain commonalities, and it, it does, uh, and yet. They're really different from one another. Uh, Sapporo is a brand new colonial city. It was, it was founded in the late 19th century, so it was sort of a new city. But in that doesn't make it uh, an outlier to many of the things that happened in these other three cities. So it actually, the, the whole issue of selection and then justifying my selection of cases and then thinking about what that, what that gave me analytically as I worked through the project and my analysis uh, really led me to this insight about how how we need to stress difference rather than uh, similarity. So I've become sort of a, a splitter rather than a lumper.
1: Now, one of the things that you talk about early on in the book, when you talk about the divergence of these or the diversity rather and excuse me and divergence of these different cities, is you talk about ways that or you mention um, that. This divergence was actually manifest in the archives that you consulted in researching these four cities. This is a really fascinating kind of issue for anybody doing any kind of historical research. And those of us who work in um, local archives or those of us who construct our own archives uh, through various sources that we compile from different areas, libraries, rare books, collections, etc. So can you talk a little bit about the way these differences were manifest in um, the archival Collections that you consulted, and how that difference in the archival collections shaped the kind of argument that you wound up telling in the story that you wound up telling.
0: Now, this was a this was a really really interesting learning experience for me. The diversity of these archives, because at first I, I was in a panic when I would go to I I, I had sort of. different stories that I was trying to track. I was trying to look at local newspapers. I was going to look at uh, social movements and see, for example, at one point I was going to look at the anti-prostitution movement and how that took place in in the different sites. I wanted to see what happened with the rice riots. Um, I was looking, I was collecting materials on local sports teams and What I would find over and over again is that uh, that Sapporo had a lot of material on. I mean, Sapporo. Actually, the archives in Sapporo were the most elaborate. They were the most developed, the most easy of access. They had the most materials, which was again a sort of a surprise to me and and seemingly counterintuitive because you'd think, gee, it's a new city. Uh, All these other places would have much deeper, richer more extensive kinds of archival collections and also habits of, of collecting. But that, that turned out not to be the case. Um, so I would have, I had to ponder. I would, I, when I encountered that, I, I had to ponder, well, why? And the same thing with, when I went to Niigata, Niigata was hard because I, it, it had, it had a lot of kind of guidebooks, secondary, Kind of materials that were produced about the city or or city white papers and that kind of thing. But it didn't have what I had been regarding as primary documents. On local culture, on modernist culture, local magazines in the same of, of the sort that I had found in Sapporo, and then Kanazawa was another case again because when I went to Kanazawa, I, I realized that Kanazawa local history in Kanazawa, the whole tradition of local history in, in Kanazawa, was very fixated on the early modern period, uh, on the Tokugawa hit period. And there weren't a lot of local historians that were interested in modern history and that had preserved kinds of materials and collections having to do with modern history. So fortunately, when I was there, I met this uh, amazing local archivist who was a curator at uh, an ethnography museum there. And he was really interested in the modern period, but he, you know, he and I had spent a lot of time laughing about how how <laughs> this this was almost like this, you know, peculiar interest. And it was almost like the uh, historians of of Kanazawa and the region didn't think there was really a modern modern Kanazawa. So, anyway, all of this generated some real challenges in terms of collecting materials. But then once I got the materials back here at home and, and I was trying to sift through them, it, at a certain point, I I had this epiphany that, that, that was something that could, I didn't have to track the same story in all of my four places, just because I was writing about, about, the uh, social movement in Okinawa, uh, excuse me, in, in Okayama where it was really prominent. I didn't have to track that same movement in Sapporo and that there were probably reasons why there wasn't a, there wasn't this, this sort of legacy of, of sources and that I, I could try to figure out, uh, Go back to to try to understand why certain materials were preserved in certain in, in in some of these cities and not in others.
1: That's great. Thank you so much. Now, one of the things that emerges from thinking about these four case studies in this way, and especially given the very different nature in some cases of the kinds of documents that were archived, which is itself reflective of something important uh, that emerges along with these provincial cities, right? And in their different cases. One of the issues that we all have to struggle with as historians, when we, especially when we put together book projects, is the way to structure the story. And especially given a story in which you are celebrating and really emphasizing the importance of regional difference, I imagine there were a number of different ways you could have structured the narrative in order to preserve that and show that, right? So the narrative itself is um, unfolds according to three major parts of the book in five chapters. And most of the parts of the book, after an introductory part that sets out sort of ways of thinking about the cities and modernity, uh, the, Next two parts of the book actually cut deeply into ways of spatially and temporally um, creating urbanity and creating the city along with modernity in these four cases that you look at. How did you decide on that structure as opposed to, let's say, a structure that looked at each one of these different um, local case studies individually as its own chapter? So what brought you to that way of constructing and, and shaping the narrative?
0: Well, that is a great question, and I, I did consider writing, just having different chapters focus on the different cities, but then I realized that I, even though I wanted to stress the the variety of. Uh, modern form and and the sort of divergent stories of the transition to modernity that these cases really highlight for me. I also wanted to be able to focus on particular themes and to always be juxtaposing and comparing. So really, in, in, a, in a sense, uh, this project allowed me to educate myself and to really learn, sort of move up a a personal learning curve on how to do comparative history. Um, So I, so I did, I did want to, in that sense, focus on different kinds of thematics. How did the railroad revolution uh, affect these four cities? How did, how did Educational systems uh, sort of take shape in these in these four different areas, and part of part of that involved uh, going back to one of the things that you opened up with in your in your um, introductory framing, that what I'm trying to do here is when we look at modernity sort of in the in in the big sense of what is what. What is modernity or modernization uh, to me, it has to do with these two things the the creation of the nation state form on one hand and the advent of industrial capitalism on the other and these you know we can say these are big abstract kinds of things that affect the whole world in the 19th and 20th century. But then when you sort of drill down into the particulars of how they influence a specific place uh, in a specific time, that's where I think you get the kind of interesting variations and and divergences and where you can use that that to help crack open some of our more uh, just simple storylines about those processes. So in that sense, that was really what took me to trying to, uh, the this, this strategy, a thematic strategy that put the juxtaposition of the different urban stories within a chapter rather than isolating them for single comprehensive treatment.
1: I think that made a lot of sense too, because it's not, it's not, by itself, a book about Kanazawa or Okayama, at at least from the perspective of of one reader, right? Just from my perspective, it's a book that's primarily or foundationally about difference. And this way of structuring it actually brings that out through the juxtaposition in each one of the chapters, I think, in a way that separating these out Um, one locality for each chapter wouldn't necessarily have communicated in the same. It would have communicated something different, right? But it wouldn't have necessarily um, built up and shaped the same kind of argument through juxtaposition as um, works really, really beautifully here. So I think it works great. Great. So as we move into the chapters of the book, um, you set out right before we get to the um, chapter the first chapter the fact that there are two vantage points for the book and this I just want to mention these very briefly because this is an important way to situate what we mean when we talk about urban history and the city as it proceeds through the rest of the chapters and the rest of our conversation so your two vantage points as you set them out early on are to look at the city as a constellation or a network of institutions that create its material contours and the materiality of the city winds up being really important in different ways over the course of the story, and you're also considering, um, number two, is the city as social imaginary. And those listeners and readers who are familiar with kind of work that considers space not preformed, but space as a production of the everyday activities and the practices of its inhabitants, will find a kindred spirit here in the book, because it's very much the kind of approach that the book takes, and not taking space or the concept of the city, the object of the city, for granted as pre-existing the practices and the lived experiences that actually helped produce these concepts in these spaces over the course here of the um, interwar period. So what happens in chapter one is you're laying out here um, sort of a way to think about why this, this discovery of the city, this formation of the city in, in its different ways and different spaces and different modes occurred when it did in the interwar period. You describe here the ways that World War I really triggered a rethinking um, of the city as an economic space and as a social space, and you take us through this story in the first chapter. So could you get us started here by talking a little bit about this? Specifically, you're emphasizing in this part of the book the importance of war booms and construction booms and really remaking urban landscapes and cityscapes here. So can you talk a little bit about that and how that shapes this part of the story?
0: (laughs) Well, as you said, that chapter one is a kind of a context chapter, and I felt like I had to answer the question. um, And this is—I always tell my graduate students this too: like you have to, you have to say why you're interested in a particular time period. You know, what is your what are your stakes in that time period, and why does that time period draw you in, and why is it it's why is that the the time that this happens? So, for me, then uh, the question was. Why the 1920s, really? Why? Why is there this incredible surge of interest, questioning, debate? Uh, why is modern, modern, modern on everybody's uh, on the tips of everybody's tongues? And also related to that, I think that for me, this is the time period when the when modern gets hyphenated or, or sort of attached to urban. And so why is that the case? And so I started to think about it. And it the answer that I came up with was that this was this period when cities are getting radically destabilized and when the city as an older form is being dissolved and the city is a new form is taking shape and there's a lot of reasons for that but mostly has to do with growth and change and the dynamism uh, that's that that happens propelled primarily by this war boom of world war one and then the way that's followed by a uh, a depression but sort of ongoing influx, huge influx of population, many of these cities, my cities and cities throughout Japan, including the, the, the big cities like Tokyo and Osaka, but all size cities are growing at this enormous rate. If you can just imagine you're, the, the place that you're living doubles in population within 10 years, that all of a sudden uh, the your your entire the built environment of your city is being uh, uh, it, it is being remade so all kinds of new buildings uh, go up cities become uh, this is the period when cities are getting electrified e- electricity is coming in and so a place like Sapporo you go from in 1912 or 13 uh, just several hundred electric uh, outside lights and then 10 years later everywhere has uh, electricity neon it really changes your the experience that you have walking through a city and the other so there's a there's all these material changes that are happening at the same time that this is prompting uh, a a major shift in the way that people think about about the city about their city but cities more generally as well and in that i think that it it really accelerates a process that had already begun in the late nineteenth century with the overthrow of the old Tokugawa regime and the the under the, the whole series of reforms that really changed the way cities were administered and their significance within a broader political economy. Um, all of that is accelerated by this booming Growth demographically, building boom, economic boom, uh, and all of that. Mm-hmm.
1: Great. And in, also, in the context of this destabilizing that you describe in this first chapter, you have this great description of the emergence of a new level of kind of social destabilization in the form of urban violence. And you talk about the importance of these uh, rice riots. So, not race riots, rice riots in 1918, just for listeners. Sometimes I don't pronounce things <laughs> super clearly. <laughs> I've got my, right. my Bronx, Jersey inflection here. So oh. rice, not race. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what's happening here, um, especially because this is an example, perhaps, of the very local character of um, sort of differences in the way that the different cities in these different places you're looking at actually experience and create these forms of destabilization in different ways. And so I think the rice riots is a really interesting example of that.
0: Right, the rice riots. Now so we the rice riots are are sort of a uh, a really important event that happened in in 1918 and and every te- textbook on modern Japan will mention the right the rice riots. So of course I you know going into this I had known about the rice riots and their significance and they when when we write about them or read about them in a, in a sort of textbook treatment of modern Japan, they're this moment of mass rage. Uh, it's the moment when the sort of crowd emerges and it's the beginning of often of what's known as Taisho democracy, which is this 1920s era of incredible social ferment, the, the, the politics of, of 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 crowds and people that don't have the vote to to push to expand the franchise and indeed in 1925 Japan uh, the the government concedes and and gives people uh, all all men are granted the the franchise so it's it's kind of this inaugural moment of this social ferment and political opening so when I looked at what happened what the rice riots meant in these different cities again i was struck by how different those and localized those impacts were on on one hand both okayama and kanazawa had much more the, the rice riots were were much more significant much more extensive much more violent in sapporo there actually wasn't there wasn't any rioting at all and niigata there was a, to a lesser extent but all of them were transformed by the kind of national event of the rice riots partially because of the ways in which those they were covered by by the media and the ways in which they their power wasn't just in what they did within every any particular place but the power to shock and scare and to push elites, both at a national and at a local level, to institute a whole range of different kinds of, of changes in urban government, in, in social policies, and in to try to confront the problems of urban poverty.
1: Great. So as we move from this framing chapter to the other chapters of the book, we move to these two parts. And as I sort of briefly mentioned before, part two is going to focus on the spatial structures that give Form to the modern city from which the city emerges and that come into being along with the modern city. And part three is going to focus on the temporal structures. And of course they're interrelated um, but this helps us, I think, isolate different modes of thinking and talking with cities in really helpful ways. So the chapters in part two, this is chapters two and three, look at the spatial relationships that create in part these ways of moving across and thinking with center and periphery. And what happens here is that local cities, the provincial cities that you're looking at, both turn into peripheries of a new national capital, Tokyo. And you talk about the emergence of Tokyo centrism here. And at the same time, they become centers of regional networks. And so we have a story about provincial cities in this part of the book as both centers and peripheries, which is really interesting. Now... In the course of going, uh, sort of taking us into these um, mechanics, taking us into these relationships and this mutual co-production in the second chapter, you look closely here at, um, at, at a lot of really interesting things. But one of the really interesting phenomena that's happening here is the way that newspapers, but also institutions of higher education, are really bringing in to the provincial cities literary trends from the capital and from outside and helping to create these kind of cultural notions of center and periphery within um, this provincial capital. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the importance of newspapers and of institutions of higher education specifically in helping to create these dynamics um, in provincial cities in this period.
0: Well, those... Right. So newspapers and the higher educational systems were the, the kinds of the institutions that I chose to foreground in, in this particular chapter in trying to understand how those institutions became the kind of material base for constructing what I call what I've identified as the the ideology of Tokyo centrism. Um, so they they sort of build it up in both material and and ideological ways. and the the educational system in Japan is really interesting. I mean one of the, the the things that that when I started thinking about this was really striking was the difference from the United States, where in the United States, a lot of our our colleges, Uh, and even universities are not in the major metropolitan areas. You don't have, there's, uh, there are a lot of universities and colleges in New York, um, in, uh, in UCLA, but not, they're not concentrated the way they are in Tokyo. Uh, And so what does that mean for the sort of urban hierarchies in Japan? Well, the, Educational systems, both the the K twelve compulsory well, it, it wasn't K twelve at that point, but the the compulsory elementary educational system, and then the higher schools, and then on there to the universities were sort of organized in this according to this spatial and cultural what becomes a, a cultural geography, so that you have every village has its own local primary school that. No matter what sort of social class you were you were in, you would you would attend. But then, if you wanted to go on uh, through a more elite track of education that would also provide cultural opportunities and economic uh, upward social mobility, you would have to go to the nearby provincial town. And then, if you wanted to move on from there to an even more elite. Uh, to the university system, you would have to go to Tokyo or, or Kyoto. So what this did was create these, these, um, these corridors that people, move through to that were both movements through physical space, but they were also movements through social and cultural space as well. And they they sort of channeled people uh, from villages into regional cities and from regional cities towards the capital. So this becomes one of the sort of material structures that undergirds Tokyo centrism and and channels talent, the uh, and and uh, creates a kind of a brain drain uh, into the capital. That's one of the material foundations of Tokyo centrism. Now, newspapers are another story and they're, they're interesting. They work a little bit differently. Um, the newspaper industry gets started in the late 19th century and you have sort of two things going on. On one hand, you have the big, major national dailies that are based in Tokyo and Osaka and become real producers of the kind of cultural power of these, these metropolitan centers. Uh, And the publishing industry is also centered in, in Tokyo as well. And uh, to a lesser extent, Osaka. But while that is reproducing the power of, of these big cities at the same time, all of the different, Prefectures and and regions have their own local newspapers, and those are frequently based, uh, most of the time they're based in prefectural capitals in in cities like the four case studies that I use in this book, and they have a very dedicated kind of local readership, and they also become places where uh, kind of institutions that anchor the local intelligentsia.
1: Great. Thank you. Now, one of the um, points before we move to chapter three that you're making in this chapter that I think is important and just worth putting out there for listeners, um, because this really does accord with, I think, the kinds of sympathies that people coming to colonial histories and world histories are also bringing to topics right now, is that you're really making a point here that we need to think about replacing a kind of diffusionist account of center to periphery or vice versa with one of the co-constitution, as you put it, and the mutual determination of the production of institutions, of knowledges, and of structures that define the modern in this period. So I think that's an important point, and I just wanted to put that out there um, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book.
0: This helped me think about how we can understand Japan's position in world history uh, as not always being on the receiving end of uh, a kind of modernity that's exported from the West on one hand, but also um, something that comes out of my own autobiography, growing up in the Midwest and then moving to New York and living in New York for many years, and one of the things that always struck me was New York. New York City was filled with Midwestern transplants, and yet all of these Midwestern transplants then sort of quickly embraced a sense of being New Yorkers. And you know, one of the things about New York, it has a, a kind of fantasy of itself as being the font of of uh, American modernism in some ways, and yet. It's it's a um, it's a place that's filled with with in migrants and so very much in the same way that Tokyo embodies this kind of diffusionist fallacy, uh, in other words, this notion that everything is that modernity is, is kind of invented in in Tokyo and it flows out to the to the provinces, but actually what you're seeing in it is that. Things are coming, you know, whether it's the brain drain, whether it's intellectuals, whether it's resources, Tokyo's magnetic uh, economic, cultural power really brings things. It's it's bringing things in from the outside, not pushing out into the provinces.
1: Great. Thank you. Now, you already mentioned a little bit um or we talked a little bit about newspapers and higher education as corridors or perhaps conduits in this story. The next chapter looks at, and I'll I'll just kind of briefly mention this um, uh, so that we can move on to the the temporal aspect of the story as well, but just to lay this out there for listeners, the next chapter looks at another kind of conduit, and this is the advent of the railroad. What you're arguing here. Um, and actually, yeah, let's talk a little bit about, about this, but I'll just kind of lay this out first. You're arguing here um, for the the way that the railroad actually transforms and produces a city-country binary, and this trans- the ways that this transforms the relationship between and the co-production, really, of the notions of urban and rural in Japan in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So this chapter talks, among other things, about the importance of a, a, sort of a passion for urban bigness. Um, the concomitant way that urban expansionism results in cities kind of annexing other territories and being reborn as bigger or greater versions of themselves. And you talk here also, and this is a really important part of the story, about the emergence of the, the notion and the practice of the suburb, the suburb as a space. You also talk here, um, and this is something I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, especially for listeners, because this is also a story of difference and of regional difference, You. Talk talk about here the ways that the expanding rail network also produces a new nationalized economic space, but a space in which there are clear winners and losers um, in among these different cities that we're talking about as part of this network. So could you talk a little bit about that? Where do we see, um, at this part of the story, the winners and the losers relative to the four case studies, or, or at least some of one or two of the case studies that we've been looking at over the course of the book thus far?
0: Well, the winners with in the in the whole story of the development of the railroad, it, it's really interesting. It sort of breaks into two different phases. There's the light, late 19th century phase. That's the beginning of Japanese railroad development, and that's when a, a kind of a national network is is laid down. And then you have in the beginning in the teens, but accelerating in the 20s and 30s, the development of regional rail. So in that first phase. A lot of the railroad development is privileging the Pacific corridor and trying to hook up uh, areas of production and urban sites with uh, a kind of uh, a trade network that, that 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 can then intersect with uh, global global trade and. Japan's political economy is very oriented towards the West. So that's, it becomes a kind of privilege privileging of the Pacific coast and the Pacific cities that are located along the Pacific coast, like Okayama uh, are very privileged by that. They get a lot of economic resources. The, first train lines are hooked up to to Okayama at that time now sapporo is also privileged in this the early phase of the of railway building because hokkaido was a site for uh, kind of an investment of the the new Japanese nation state in developing this colonial kind of territory. So Sapporo gets linked up really early as well. Kanazawa and and Niigata over on the Japan Sea coast. They get hooked up a lot later, and it's uh, it's a lot more difficult for those cities to kind of capture some of the economic development advantages that are offered by by railroads uh, in that early phase. But in the in the teens and twenties, they both are are connected up, and you have at that point very extensive. Um, regional networks that are created that then enhance the the power of those cities within their regional economies. And so I guess one of the distinctions I'm making here is there's a difference between um, power within a regional economy and an, an ability of entrepreneurs and economic uh, agents in a city like Kanazawa or Niigata to uh Enhance their uh, their wealth vis a vis by uh, exploiting uh, a regional the building of a regional economy uh, in comparison with their uh, an e- a local economic development um, strategy that is building off connections with Tokyo and a, a sort of trade network that's oriented towards trading with areas outside of Japan.
1: Great. Now, as we move into the third part of the book, we move from time from space to time, uh, but again, without any assumption that these are fundamentally different sorts of things, the book, in, in many ways, as much as it's about difference, is also about the importance of connectivity and connections. But here we're going to move to a way of thinking cities, thinking with and through cities that looks specifically at the temporal as a mode of being, as a mode of constructing space and, and, and living in space. Part three, um, the chapters in part three, look at the multiple temporalities, the simultaneously multiple temporalities of the modern city. Chapter four takes us into the ways that the city as a concept, as a way of being, really takes shape in the form of an organic community and, as you put it, a sovereign subject In the interwar period. And you look at the ways in this chapter that municipalities, local municipalities, actually mobilized, because we're talking about time, the idea of a shared past and a common future to build a sense of community. And you you talk about this in terms of the imagination of communities as chronotypes. So it's a really interesting part of the story for anyone interested in time as a fundamental element of the craft of producing narrative and producing history. One of the really fascinating parts of this chapter, and and I really loved this part of the book, it was super, super fascinating for me, is the part where you're talking about, um, and, and a crucial part of this part of the book, the invention of urban biography. Through a local history movement. So, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. What's happening here in this part of the narrative and in this part of the interwar period in terms of urban biography um, and its relationship to the local history movement? And perhaps, how does this play out in, you know, at least a couple of the different localities that we're, we're talking about in different ways?
0: So, this this was something that I, I came to as I was, you know, I was. Doing this, the, the research on this book and kind of working through my materials at the same time, I was kind of reading around in urban history. And I realized that so much of urban history is both in, in Japan, but you know, more generically, is written as a, a kind of urban biography. In other words, a life history of a city. Whether that's the city of New York, whether that's the city of, you know, Baltimore, or uh, or, or a history of Tokyo. And a lot of urban history focuses not on a broader comparison of a whole range of histories but but case studies and community studies and that's that's particularly the the uh, that's particularly true of american urban history the tradition of american urban history and then so when i when i was dealing with my cities and uh, i was thinking about you know, this, this problem of urban biography. And one of the things that just really struck me was that it's something that itself has its own historicity and that the history of writing about cities in this particular way and these kinds of these and the cities that I was looking at, um, that it's something that emerges out of this very specific local history movement in, in that uh, took place in Japan in the 1920s. I think that these kinds of local history movements had their, uh, had e- equivalents in other parts of the world. Um, they maybe didn't happen right at the same time, but for Japan, a lot of these, some place like Niigata didn't necessarily, people didn't necessarily have the same kind of investment in uh, their local identity and in under, a uh, self understanding of them, of themselves as, as Niigata citizens, uh, in 1600. But, uh, part of these, this huge boom in in local histories that emerges and studies of, of localities that emerges in the, in the teens and twenties and thirties is this fixation with identity and the ways in which sense of identity is, is mapped onto uh, a delineation of a very particular history of your own past. I mean, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, that's great.
1: And, and, um, It's one of the things that's so interesting about this in the in this part of the chapter is precisely that is that you're linking the construction here of local identities with the construction of local notions of time, and so that plays out differently in these different localities, right? And you you describe in here, and I'll just very briefly um, mention this for listeners, just so that they have a sense of this too, the ways in which, for example, in Hokkaido, there's a time that's based in the teleology of colonization and that creates its own form of local identity versus Nikata, where you talk about the importance of the logic of the port in driving that local sense of time and chronology. So I think it's a really wonderful way of having a comparative sense of the city as time in a way that I, I just never thought of it this way before. And it's, um, it's a really, I think, Wonderfully stimulating part of the book. So I just want to make sure that we mention that. Um, so I want, I want everyone listening to this to at least read that part of the book, but of course, hopefully they'll read the whole thing. So. Sticking with time, as we come to the final body chapter of the book before the epilogue, we move from um, this really, again, wonderful set of accounts of the production of identity through the production of time, um, which includes also, I'll mention, a really fascinating discussion of guidebooks as texts and the importance of famous sites, to focusing on the Cult. What do you call the cult of the new? The focus on newness, the future, um, and its conjunction with modernity and the emergence of aspects of city life in different contexts and in different ways in this interwar period. So you talk in this part of the chapter uh, or in this part of the book about in in particular, well, about a lot of things. But one of the things that comes up here is the importance of the idea that all moderns looked alike right mm-hmm. in relation to the future and you talk here about the importance of department stores to creating this kind of uh this kind of framework but also the importance of in, in a related way of the modern girl and so could you talk a little bit about this the kind of the appearance the appearance of modernity and it's the ways that in in the context you're looking at it plays off of sameness and difference and and I would love to hear you talk more about department stores and modern girls in this context. So anything in that broad range of topics <laughs> that are related here that most excites you um I'd love to hear
0: about. Well the the what you're raising here is you know along with this idea of of diffusion the, that is the kind of the diffusionist fallacy that of, that, that Tokyo centrism um Masks the fact that everything's coming into Tokyo with this with m- this mythology of of Tokyo going out everywhere and and reproducing itself and being the font of modernity. Another uh, of the, the the mythologies that undergird. This notion of Tokyo centrism ideolo- ideologically and also just the ways that we understand modernity is this notion that over time, everything begins to look more and more and more the same. And there's this kind of general homogenization or, in other words, a narrative of convergence. And um, as I struggled with this problem uh, of what's you know that's that's part of the comparative method of you know how do we think about similarity and difference and how do we how do we how do we understand what's similar and and, and what's difference and I and I came to realize that part of my struggle around that by lo- looking in, at urban sites in particular was how much I was kind of um, caught up in these my assumptions about convergence and that that if you look at something like a department store, a department store, we we think of department stores as this in the same way that we think of suburbs as going out and creating cookie cutter development or that a depart in every department store, you know, if you have a Macy's in Madison or a Macy's in New York, they're going to be selling exactly the same stuff. So by the same token in Japan, a Mitsukoshi in Tokyo, uh, and a Mitsukoshi in Kanazawa are going to be sort of like feeding off the, the whole identical set of images and products and a kind of homogeneous modernity. But in fact, what I, I realized as I started looking at the history of department stores in these different places is that they produce something really different. On one hand, um, particularly when you get uh, a metropolitan department store company like Mitsukoshi going out and setting up branches in these different cities, they are exporting a kind of um, a knowledge, a, a marketing set of marketing strategies, a, a notion of fashion, and uh, also a kind of a Tokyo branding out to provincial cities. But they also have to respond to and deal with uh, very particular local cultures of, of consumption and uh, the local market. And those differences, it turns out, are quite decisive. So department stores in these regional cities differ radically than the metropolitan sort of department store experience, in part because there's fewer department stores, and so those department stores sort of loom larger within local culture space. But also they, they just – end up being integrated in in very different kinds of ways. So for example, department stores in Sapporo are very caught up in promoting and developing local food processing because that's the sort of local industry. And in in Kanazawa, um, they get, very much involved in the production and dissemination of a kind of neo-traditional set of uh, craft industries. So it was that was one of the things that was really interesting to me to to find out how much something like like department stores that that seemingly produce this cookie cutter development are actually vehicles for the production of cultural difference. And the same thing could be true you can say about Moga like if there's anything that emerges out of the 1920s as this kind of uh, ultra er symbol of of modern, it's the it's the modern girl, and so you might if you at sort of first blush, you see pictures of Moga in Kanazawa magazines and pictures of Moga in Niigata magazines, and you could just say, oh, that's just sort of like those places trying to imitate. Tokyo style and the Tokyo MOGA. But in fact, when you look at the ways in which the MOGA is both uh, a system of representations and a kind of a, a glitzy figure of modernity, but also is tapping into local women's movements, opportunities for employment, uh, actual, you know, real living and breathing modern girls or, or women who are adapting this new sub and playing around with this new subjectivity both as consumers in their work life uh, and as, as school girls as well as in their married life there's then you get embedded in really interesting ways in local co- sort of culture and society and you see that the MOGA is a is is to think of it as a, a site for convergence is one of those ways in which our narratives of, of modernity uh, suppress a whole story of variety and, and local difference.
1: Great. And later on in that chapter, also, there's a great account. I won't ask you to talk too much about this because um, I'll, I'll sort of bring us to a close Soon, But I just want to mention for listeners, there's also a great account of the ways that the local history movement in these different places looks at and looks to folk crafts and festivals as signs of difference. And and this is manifest in part in a series of exhibitions and local industrial fairs. And um, one moment stuck out particularly strongly for me when reading about the local fair in Kanazawa, where you described the hunt for beauties. Oh, <laughs> this is like this is. A, tell me if I'm getting this uh, wrong or right, but this is so. Participants would go to this fair and see pictures of local beauties, and then go out into the exhibition to hunt for them, basically to try to find them in person, like a a, a sort of search for women. Is that? Is that? Am I getting that roughly?
0: Right? Yes. Well, it was. It was the um like local geisha and cafe waitresses were kind of um like mini stars and celebrities in in Japanese cities and so because the the red light districts were a really prominent part of of local culture, and so everybody, if you if you looked at a local guidebook from that period, uh, often they would have pictures of the the four famous local beauties, and so people would be familiar with these um, we, with these women's faces, and so that was one of their marketing things: is that they would give you a little a little kind of baseball card image of the of the beauty. And um, uh, and then you would go out and she would be somewhere on site at the fair, not on display necessarily, but she'd be out in the in the uh, in the crowd. So what
1: did you do if you found her?
0: I guess, you know, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the questions, right? What happened? (laughs) So maybe maybe
1: a future uh, a future scholar of the hunt for beauties can let us know. (laughs) what (laughs) so louise thank you so much for spending so much time talking with me about the book today i won't um i don't want to keep you for two hours well i do want to keep you for two hours but i'm not going i promise not to keep you or listeners (laughs) for another hour so i just um before we wrap up want to mention um without asking you to talk too much about it that there is an epilogue to the book that takes us forward in time and looks at both how the emergence of urban time and urban space transform immediately after this period um, and, and sort of what, what changes in the post-war period and also during wartime. So um, it's a really interesting part of the book, and it, it acts as a kind of coda to the really wonderful account of difference and convergence and um, local urban being, um, really, in creation that you've given us in um, the, the body chapters of the book. So there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's an extraordinarily rich study, and all of the general um, sort of arcs of narrative that we've talked about within the chapters of the book are punctuated by really wonderfully evocative anecdotes and case studies and deep readings of many, many different kinds of sources that you bring to bear in the course of this research. Given that, is there anything in particular that um, that's about the book or about um, the general set of issues surrounding the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about in our conversation, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? And again, perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it.
0: Hmm. Well, I guess there's not anything really particular that that I would that I would highlight. I just, I have to say thank you so much. This has been a wonderful opportunity to to talk about these different things. And, um, I hope, uh, yeah.
1: Oh, thank you. I mean, and this is, um, and I'll, I'll mention this a little bit, um, when in my sort of intro for readers and well, In the experience of listeners, they will already have heard this, um, but I'll mention for you that I'm going to, in the future, so this is, as a footnote, a convergence of past and present and future, um, mention this, that this is, I learned a tremendous amount from the book. I mean, and I think it's a study... That is that speaks widely to anybody interested in the emergence and creation of space and time and its relationship to modernity and also to our craft as historians. And so thank you for spending the time not just writing the book, but also um, talking with me about it because it's really been a pleasure. So now that the book is out and congratulations, it's also beautiful. The cover is very pretty, so it'll look very nice on the bookshelves of people um, who go and grab a copy and buy it. What's next for you? Are there any projects or maybe an individual project that's currently inspiring you and exciting you at the moment?
0: Well, I've got a couple of projects that are that are um, I'm kind of working on simultaneously, and they both grow out of. Uh, Leftovers things that couldn 't find their way or fit into this book, and one of them one of the themes that that emerges in the book and that i wasn 't really able to fully explore is the whole idea. I, I was really intrigued by why it was that the new middle class was such a prominent um, agent in this whole process and and how it was that 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 um, they become in just a sort of oversized uh, dominant presence uh, socially in the construction of metropolitan urban policy, urban culture. um, And they come to dominate urban society in a lot of ways during this period. Uh, So I'm going to, I'm going to be working on something having to do with the emergence of this new social formation and, and its sort of rise to power in this period and how that's tied up with in the post-war period, this kind of middle-class myth that people have in Japan, you know, where supposedly 90% of the population thinks of itself as middle-class. And uh, that sort of begs, uh, you know, 90% of the population is not Middle class by objective criterion, but why do they think of themselves as the middle class? I think these two things are related. So that's one thing I'm working on, and the other one, again, sort of grew, grew out of some of the materials that I was I started collecting, but it wasn't able to to use in this study. And it was this huge outpouring of social surveys, just mountains and mountains of social surveys, uh, and the kind of rise of the sociological impulse in the in the twenties, um, and so I really would like to track that down a little bit why, why does sociology and social science thinking become so important not just uh, academically but also sort of politically and within state policy making and um, yeah so that's, that's something else I'm going to be working on
1: well best of luck with those projects and thank you again for making time to talk it's really been a pleasure
0: my pleasure Carla this was wonderful thank you very much
1: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll
0: see you next time.